0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show
1: description to support now. Hello and welcome to Social Founder Stories, the podcast for everyone interested in inspirational stories about charities and social enterprises. I'm your host, Caroline Deal, and I'm the founder of two charities, the Media Trust and Together TV. I well know the joys and challenges of being a social founder. Social founder stories are about the amazing people who make social change happen. People who use their passions, skills and entrepreneurial drive to make a difference and to make our world a better place. You'll hear about what makes social founders tick, how they create impact What they struggle with and how they overcome their challenges, or not in some cases. Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk. So enjoy listening to Social Founder Stories. Send us lots of feedback, and if you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast and also to our newsletter at www.socialfounder.org. We'd love to keep in touch with you. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Josie Norton, the groundbreaking co-founder and chief executive of Help Refugees and their iconic brand, Choose Love. In the space of just a few years, Josie has gone from being a volunteer co-founder to being chief executive of Europe's highest-profile refugee charity. Back in 2015, Josie and her other two co-founders were not prepared to sit back and watch the horrors of the refugee crisis. They jumped into what was meant to be just a one-off action to take donated supplies over to the jungle in Calais for a few weeks. A week into starting this campaign, the image of three-year-old Alan Curdie was all over our media, and they quickly realised that there was a huge long-term need that they just couldn't turn away from. In this episode of Social Founder Stories, we hear Josie's amazing journey of how she has grown help refugees into the largest grassroots distributor of aid in Europe we hear how her own founder journey has changed beyond recognition and how she has had to, and still does, constantly develop her leadership and management skills to cope with such rapid expansion. Working with high-profile celebrities and brands, organising complex logistics to deliver goods into refugee camps across Europe and, of course, raising the funds and donated goods so desperately needed by the refugees still living in horrendous conditions and uncertainty. Enjoy hearing Josie's story. It really is incredible and inspirational. Welcome to Second Home again here. Now we're we're with Josie, Josie Norton, who is the amazing founder and co-founder of Help Refugees. Josie, we're thrilled to have you on this podcast series. Thank
0: you so much for having me.
1: Really brilliant. And I can't wait to hear your story, actually, because I've read little bits about your story, lots of things about your story, but there'll be loads and loads that our listeners don't know as well. Oh, that's so So nice. Maybe just tell us a little bit about what, what it is now, and then you can go back in time. Community. Okay. Sure. what were the drivers and great
0: the... um so yeah so i am co-founder and now ceo of help refugees we now work in 14 countries we fund 105 different projects 105 yeah they're completely wow. um cross-sector so everything from search and rescue boats to children's hospitals their education programs we are still operational in calais in northern france yes Which Which is where you started. Which is where we started, absolutely. And we now very much see ourselves as a movement rather than as a charity. We've had over 30,000 volunteers, we're over 75% crowdfunded and we're almost at 20 million pounds raised which is
1: 20 million pounds raised yeah. in
0: how long uh we're gonna be four in about two
1: weeks oh that's so sweet that's yeah. amazing yeah so sweet and so powerful yeah so is. tell us go back right okay. to the beginning so, so, so how what was it Oh, actually tell us before you even t- talk about help refugees have you ever founded anything before Have you ever when you were a no, kid actually or when
0: you at were, school i was always the person that was like um we should do the amnesty letters. Uh, and yeah, yeah. I was always really interested in, in this field, I guess, at, at school and stuff. And then I kind of, I did anthropology at university, yeah. but I actually dropped out before the end. Yeah.
1: That's that's a classic entrepreneur thing, actually. Is not, it? To, to drop out of university. Oh, and, I didn't know uh, that. Yeah, 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 I
0: dropped out of university and I, I worked in a pub for a while. Yeah. And then I, I started to work in music. So I worked in music licensing at Endemol and then I got a job working in Coldplay's management team wow. as personal assistant to their manager. Oh, that must um, been amazing. It was amazing and it's where I learned like a huge 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 amount of, yeah. of, what, of what
1: has been so important for yeah. the yeah. growth of help refugees. So you were a campaigner from when you were really young doing the Amnesty Whilst letters. I was young yeah. yeah
0: and then it kind of I lost it a bit but I'd imagine that I would go and work for the UN or something and then somehow my life had taken me to music and for a for a portion of my 20s, I was like, oh my God, I've really messed up. Oh, really? Um, like, this is what I've done. It's like, a tough I've, age. I've, yeah, I've left university. But uh, but interestingly, actually, like, a lot of those skills and the connections that I made through working in music have been so important mm-hmm. now. So you just never know what, what, what your journey is. Plan is for you. I think.
1: I think the founder journey is so interesting. Actually, what yeah. what gives somebody the impetus and the skills and the learning yeah. and the and the bravery, the daring to set something up? Yeah, I guess.
0: So, yeah. So so, there, so how so, did this happen? So um, help
1: refugees in
0: August of 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, that is when it was the height of the refugee crisis, as it was coined. So there were. That was when like the borders were kind of open a million people arrived in europe um seeking sanctuary in that year predominantly from syria but also from iraq afghanistan south sudan eritrea um and it was the news story of the moment and we were seeing um all these images on the news that were just utterly heartbreaking of families in boats people crossing borders children you know just beside themselves and um i was at lunch with uh some friends with uh Dawn Porter and uh-huh. um, Leanna Bird. Yes. Uh, and we were just um, just just having lunch and I was saying like, I-, I feel like we have to do something. I feel like we should try and raise, like let's put on a little event, why don't we try and raise a grand yeah. um, and do something because I, I had always very much been a person who um, would put on Facebook, like share, I always say this, I would always like share articles or petitions, nice. but often I hadn't even, read like, I, if I'm being honest, I hadn't even read the article and maybe hadn't even signed the petition myself. And I felt like, oh, sharing that, that's my my bit of yeah. good deed done. Yeah. And and it felt like, right, no, actually we have to do something real and tangible.
1: And you were in London. Then. I was
0: in, so yeah. I was living uh, in LA actually, wow. Um, working for Coldplay, yeah. but I had come home for a month because uh, the band and all their team were here. Yeah. So I happened to be here.
1: And actually, was there any talk of the refugees in America in LA? Was it-
0: yeah, no, there was. It was a big news story there as well. Not as good. much so as here, but <laughs> yeah. it
1: was there. So you were super conscious of everything that was going on.
0: Uh, yeah, and, and just and it was literally on the news constantly. especially, yeah. especially Calais because so you,
1: it's so close. And you had this lunch with it with this. They were friends, Dawn yes. and Liliana. Yeah, Liana. Yeah, Liana. Liana. yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, they're friends. Yeah, really good friends. Yeah. And um, so we then connected to some people who were volunteering already in Calais or had like gone over to see what was going on. And they told us what items were needed. Right. And in fact, the Guardian had done an article uh, talking about it. And there was the phone number of a volunteer at the bottom. I called her and was like, what do you need? So period. so people told us um, that we need, they needed tents, sleeping bags, yeah. um, shoes, yeah. first aid kits, um, various different, food items um and, uh, a volunteer called tom radcliffe who was working in the jungle he had a donate page so we kind of joined that
1: just explained to you. Raise a thousand I'm sure, pounds i'm sure everyone knows but just just remind people who are listening around the world what the jungle is
0: oh okay so calais um is where the uk border sits but in northern france and there's always been a kind of it's always been a migratory route of people trying to get to the to the UK but as the refugee crisis hit um a huge camp organically formed at this border um, so when we, when we started there were about 5,000 people there but it grew to 10,000 people yep. and and we became the camp management of that camp which I'll tell you about in a second
1: okay amazing
0: um so, so sorry I interrupted you no, You're going, not at all. going back to Tom yes so sorry. we now joined this uh, donate page it was called we we called it help Calais uh-huh. um and we were then started doing social posts that were saying um, if you want to help you can donate on this page or um if you've got items, then maybe you can let us know, and we'll come and collect them. But so many people started to say that they they had items, so we got a uh, one room for free at Big Yellow Storage in North Finchley. Mm-hmm. I went on my lunch break, um, in an Uber to go and say, "Will you give us a room free?" And they did. And then then once we had that room, we were like, in fact, it was Leanna's sister suggested, "Why don't we do an Amazon wish list? So that would be a really, and then people could just deliver the stuff."
1: To there, and that would be new stuff. And as that would well. be
0: new stuff, which yeah. is much better. Yeah. So we set all that up, um, and then I got a phone call from the big yellow storage, who were like, um, "You've got seven thousand packages arriving from Amazon tomorrow. Oh my god! So you better get people down here to put it all away."
1: Or and did you have? R- we're not. Did you have room for them all in the one room? No.
0: So we had to ask for extra rooms, um, and then you know, it was predominantly. It was a lot of this happened from Dawn's. Twitter actually, but also the links just went viral because people really wanted a way to help, but they didn't know yeah. how. So suddenly like the independent put it in a piece of like, what can you do to help? So if this all happened, Really organically and in a kind of bad way.
1: There was no sense of an organization at this uh, stage. Absolutely not. Just, no, what, no, no. what did and it feel like? What did you think you would all do? It doing just felt like a, like
0: crazy. This is a crazy story, but it, you, we felt very caught up in the emergency of yeah, it. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and also, it's like, right, well, that's happening tomorrow. So now you just have to think of a solution. So we wrote on social media, um, right, we need, really need volunteers. Um, and then I was terrified no one would show up. But actually the next day, like 40 people showed up.
1: At this warehouse or in the storage at, at space? At the storage space, Incredible. yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and, uh, and, they, you know, people from all walks of life, kids who just finished their GCSEs, they're like ladies who, who had just, uh, you know, got over cancer treatment, grandmas. All walks of life were there. Um, And a woman called uh, Danny Lawrence was one of the people who arrived and she ended up like really organizing everyone and how to put everything away. She's still um, a trustee and on our board and and has been part of our core team since the very beginning. Philly Boyle, who's our director and head of partnerships. She was also one of the people who arrived. Nico, our COO, was also one of the people who arrived. So that was just yeah, it was an incredible, incredible time and moment.
1: How wonderful! Um, and again, at the time, but we didn't y- know. You didn't. You went thinking ahead. You were just like going with the flow. Going
0: with the flow. So suddenly, a, a guy called Ash came, who was a logistics person from a prison, and he was like, "Right, this is how you need to sort and pack everything. You need to palletize everything." I didn't know what a pallet was. Yeah. Um, so, this, this, so this. I was so lucky. Did it was just... all. I always say it's like people just fell out of the sky, and people, and they still do. Mm um it's crazy whenever mm. whenever there's a an urgent need for someone they they just seem to appear
1: and at this stage you were doing everything or the group of you were doing everything voluntarily Absolutely. you weren't spending money you no, were just no begging borrowing stealing but, but this
0: is all happening within a week so by the end of the week also the photo of the little boy island curdy uh, who washed up on the shore of Turkey, yeah. trying to reach Greece which changed the world so yeah. it really did it changed the world um that happened so that kind of was a catalyst as well for just I think uh, an explosion of compassion in mm-hmm. the British public and indeed the the, the the world um but for us this probably all wouldn't have happened had that had, in the way that no, it did without that without that image yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and, with, and so, with, without that so that, that, that tragic just event
1: that just created an exponential it did
0: and so by the awareness. end of the week we'd raised 56,000 pounds
1: wow and how how did and that happen how did you again quite interested in this sort of organisational stuff of like this how did you actually set that up so that that the, the, was all the on the giving, a giving just giving page just, of private
0: donations brilliant. but we um we so there were kind of two things happening concurrently mm. so, that, so we now had this money we had this stuff we hadn't really worked out how we were going to get the money out of that page yet um, but we went to Calais to kind of see who the organisation was that we would hand all of this stuff over to yeah. and the money. Yeah. Um, uh, and we got there and there was no big organisation working there. There was no governmental body. There was no big NGO that you would expect. And there were 5,000 people.
1: So no Save the Children. No. No Oxfam. No one. No nobody. refugee organisations. No, nobody That is stunning.
0: Just, just, just is... kind of civil society yeah um and uh, some local french ngos who've been there for years who were used to dealing with the kind of up to 500 people that you might have at one time mm-hmm. that would be like a crazy amount of people you know it might be 10 20 30. um but they just didn't know how to cope they c- they couldn't
1: cope with this with this number. And by this time, there were a fi- you said about five thousand 5, people, refugees of all ages, Absol- and yeah, yeah, of all
0: ages, families. You know, that was something so striking when I first got there. You'd seen seen on the news, and it looked like it was so many men, who still are absolutely deserving of our our kindness and compassion. But it was so many more families than what you saw yeah. on the news, and children, babies without nappies on, yeah. people had no shoes on, people had nothing to eat. We met, uh, you know, children on their own. I, I didn't even ask, know the phrase yeah. "unaccompanied minor," uh-huh. um, but on that very first day, we met children completely by themselves. I mean, it's just yeah. insane. And you're like, "Where are the where are child services? This is this is mad."
1: So you were, you were wandering around trying to find organisations that. Could yeah,
0: help and them. there were some key volunteers who had who had arrived there who we kind of connected with, and they were saying, you know, there needs to be organization here because on, on top of the fact that there was no support when people were arriving people were arriving just opening their boot that could cause a riot yeah. like it was so um just chaotic and, it, and you could just feel it was starting to get cold it was so muddy just it felt terrifying what was going to happen yeah. so we decided to um we were still called help calais then because uh-huh. that had been like the hashtag that had gone viral um but we partnered with a local french organization called L'Auberge de Migrant. Uh-huh. Um, and we rented a warehouse and then we started a distribution system a shelter building program Incredible. um and realized that we needed to have a kind of uh, a, a financial structure to be able to carry on because we were like right we're, we're gonna we're gonna yeah. do this we can't unsee what we've seen um
1: how did you how did you do the the practical stuff like the shelter building and the warehouse? So did, um, did somebody did you have people so, based so there? So
0: Nobert were able to like were like we need a warehouse, so they they were doing that. And then Philly and Nico, who I mentioned, they stayed in Calais uh-huh. um, and were there doing all of that organizing. We were able to like go on social media and say we need we need builders, and also through our own networks. Um, and then people came. The like the design for the structure happened, and then. And then it was just a real... The physical structure. The physical structure structure of the shelters. Um, And then we made like a kind of... We just started... We realised that we needed to make it, that people only bought the useful items. So we made like a a diagram that we spread everywhere on social media and said, this is what we need. This is how you get it there. Mm -hmm. We set up email addresses that were like for donations, for volunteers. And just started... But none of us really knew what we were doing.
1: And how were you getting the stuff... Across the channel, out of So just, we were, what did you do?
0: So we were also people were calling up and saying that, um, you know, they they had they would they would sponsor the cost of a lorry. Uh-huh. We eventually actually Tesco gave us free lorries. Amazing
1: branded um, Tesco lorries. No, actually
0: not branded. Oh, that's interesting. Um, they. Yeah, it was mad. People, we would like write. We needed like installation for the shelters, and then different building companies would be contacting us, and we'd be coordinating it all. It was really crazy. Oh, incredible. Um, and, and were you working at this yes, time still? But I wasn't doing a regular job. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um,
0: sorry about that. Um, it so, was, so you're working in London,
1: not, a, in, not London. in LA. No. So.
0: Um, and we then also we were we were working out what we're going to do because the, once you're over five thousand pounds on a on like a donations page, that money needs to be released to a charity. But we obviously weren't a charity. It can take like six months to register uh, as a charity. And we needed to spend that money like yesterday. So um, we were contacted by an organization called Prism The Gift Fund, who were like a donor advised fund.
1: Um, yeah, I think our, interest, our listeners will be quite interested in that. Yeah. So, tell, so tell us quickly what PRISM is and how it works.
0: They're, they're an incredible organisation. They are a donor advised fund who would traditionally for like individuals who wanted to pay, who wanted to place some of their wealth in a fund and then release it to charities and and use it as a, as a charitable fund, but needed the kind of organ, the structure around that, the finance team or the lawyers, all that kind of thing. But they were starting a new model called a collective fund, uh-huh. which would basically allow small groups or organisations who wanted to register as a charity to not have to do all of that back end, um, which you know takes a lot of expertise, a lot of liability, um, and they would provide that. So money could go to them, they would have a kind of restricted fund that's just yours. Um, and then when you want to spend any of that money, um, they have the finance team, the legal team, everyone around that to make sure it's absolutely being used for charitable purposes. You actually never touch the funds they do. And it's kind of like a second layer of due, how due diligence. Interesting. Yeah. And so it meant that we could immediately have an account um, and begin spending that money, but also be sleeping at night knowing that we were doing everything exactly by the book. Um, and also for our donors. And do they knowing. charge quite a lot? Do they take So percentage? at the time they charged, uh, how how much did they charge? It was 6% a quarter and and capped a certain amount right, so right, it was right. incredible
1: but really useful and I, a lot cheaper than trying to set up a oh my god absolutely jersey. and we
0: just wouldn't have known we know how to do it now but we wouldn't have known them so did you did you keep using them? actually we're still with them and because it's a brilliant system and it works really well and you
1: haven't set up as a separate charity
0: we have also set up as a separate charity but that's mm. kind of dormant we don't really use it how interesting um, yeah. because it just works really well with Prism I think yeah. you know we also now have have big donors who donate a, a huge amount of funding to us. Um, and it that double layer of due diligence is brilliant. They're they're just brilliant, they work really well with us. Do
1: so you put that through PRISM as well? they really Every, big donations,
0: all our money. Right. Mm.
1: Do they do your accounts as well? Then?
0: They do our accounts and everything. We have two full time staff now within PRISM
1: who just look after help refugees. Interesting. Um, well, we might put a link on the Social Founder Network website yeah, it's actually really great. because I think it sounds like a really interesting resource. Oh, it, it
0: is because also, especially when you're you know that that energy and that tension it takes to get something off the ground and get it to be something sustainable yeah. Yeah. you don't necessarily have the time to be to be really managing yeah. all of that back end process
1: and just quickly while we're still on the on the money in prism and everything were you still did you continue to use just giving or how how do you so take prism, the donations now prism
0: actually used bt my donate uh-huh. um so we used bt my donate for a long time but which was 0% commission um and then uh, but then as we developed and our website developed, we realized we wanted to have a really slick payment interface. Yes. So we moved to having Stripe integrated into our website and now we actually use Braintree. Right. Um, interesting. So really yeah, interesting it is we'll all of these things is a really these. interesting to learn. Mm. You know, like over four years, the world has moved on a lot as well. It's like now it's really important that we have Apple Pay on our website, and you know you've got to keep making donation donating as easy yeah. as yeah. possible for people, yeah. or they won't do it. Mm-hmm. The Facebook tools have been really helpful. Instagram have just launched a donate sticker. But all these things are super
1: important. So let's go back to yeah, so, you're in Cali. You've got these crazy amounts of stuff arriving yeah. and donations. Yeah. So what? How did how did you guys start to? Lead who who became the person who was sort of giving the orders? How did you manage as a sort of group of founders? Because you were what three founders? Three we co-founders. Were th- we
0: were three co-founders, yeah. but then and then all and the- then all the, every, the you know Philly Nico Danny, all these women that I'm that I'm talking about were everyone all, all was women vanity,
1: all women how lovely yeah
0: still predominantly. <laughs> sorry sorry all my males yeah it's still <laughs> a predominantly female led team
1: that's so
0: interesting um, we we but everyone was kind of do in charge of their own their own bit and that was really important to make sure that people you know had roles and responsibilities very early on right. to to be as organized and as you possible. and you just worked
1: that out collectively about who to yeah, take on yeah and then
0: gradually over time it, i became the ceo because that's just
1: that how far in when did that happen and how did you do, cu- how did you decide after that?
0: a couple of months um oh, quite
1: quickly, Josie.
0: I didn't decide actually everyone, it it just happened naturally. It's just um yeah, it's it's just it's just what happened in terms of how things were being driven and mm-hmm. um and also you know that I really believe this, that there's no the person who's folding trousers in the warehouse is as important as the CEO. Like this is all a connected um wheel. Yeah. But in terms of you know, just where where that the responsibility of making making sure everything is is compliant and that there is enough funding and managing the different relationships it just happened that it just happened naturally but we're very much like a a, a very horizontal team and everyone yeah. everyone works so hard and everything wouldn't work without all the other yeah. people who are who are working here.
1: You know you were saying earlier about how you'd learned so many skills working yeah. with Coldplay and in other jobs yeah. you've done were there particular skills that you thought you felt confident that you can you could do like, I don't know, I organizing. Think, I or think
0: it's kind of, you know, stuff like, if it, there was a naivety to us having never worked in the sector before. So when we arrived in Calais, it's like, oh, well, why don't people have anywhere to sleep? And why don't people have anything to eat? And like, obviously, that should be some form of child protection here. Whereas I think people from the sector were like, but it's complicated because of this and this and this, yeah. but we didn't know that. And then I think, Also in the job that I'd had before, it's like, if people wanted to have lunch on the moon tomorrow, you just have to make that happen. So no wasn't really an option. Um, And I think that was really helpful. And then to kind of go back to the story, when I was then in London and a lot of our team were now in Calais, really running that, we, and we were now registering with Prism, but to continue to raise funds, we really needed to utilize social media. So we opened our Instagram, our Facebook, our Twitter. We also had been speaking to volunteers in Greece on Facebook and realised that there was a huge, huge, huge need there so we changed to help refugees rather than help calais because it felt very clear that we couldn't just be helping in that yeah. in yeah. that one place and the desperate need was, was everywhere
1: and you'd, you'd always right from the beginning you'd done a lot with the twitter hashtag yes the help calais, help one. calais. And, and that then, had, that had been a big driver of everything it I had it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah help calais yeah. was
0: huge and then it became help refugees yeah very quickly and then again from my skills before understanding branding getting a good logo understanding social media and the importance of that understanding the talking with your community how important that is yeah. understanding logistics from from like touring for example there were all these things that you wouldn't think would be helpful but they were so we now had become help refugees um, just to touch on what had happened in Greece I had seen a volunteer saying that she was on the island of Lesbos, a woman called Merrill, who on Lesbos, there were ten thousand people arriving every single day. People were yeah. drowning. Horrendous. She was saying that there were so many children; they were sleeping outside. It had been raining for ten days, and they desperately needed doctors. So I um, wrote on Facebook: "Is anyone a doctor? We will fly you to Greece um, and it's put up, put on. you up on Airbnb." Yeah. Um, now, now I look back in horror. And didn't actually check as, as to whether anyone was a doctor or not, but we just trusted and flew them. Luckily, everybody was. And the safeguarding thing as well. You yeah, we didn't know about safeguarding. Yeah. Now, obviously, we are you know safeguarding is something we are so proud of and is an extreme priority, and we have all these systems and processes. Mm-hmm. But we just didn't but know. You just
1: jumped in and yeah. did it. You needed to, and no, and again, nobody, no other big organisations were no. really. So supporting we flew twenty doctors. Greece to Greece, um, and from the UK from
0: the UK. Um, and then realized that, oh my God, the same thing was happening there, but but civil society, amazing organizations were stepping up. There were people who were doing distribution, who were doing food. Yeah. Some of them were international, a lot of them were local, um, but they didn't necessarily even have organizations that could absorb funding. Mm. So there was a woman, for example, who was um, cooking food for a thousand people a day. But she didn't have any money or an organisation, so we set up an account at the local supermarket, um, and some of the lorries that we were sending from our big yellow storage were also going to Greece. Right. So, so we now had become help refugees. We we were building up this community with with the with the public who were seeing on social media. When we were saying, "Could you donate money for tents? Could you send this stuff on the Amazon wish list?" And then they would see it arrive because we were able to show it arriving, and that became something really important. With us from the from the, the media get-go. stuff
1: is interesting actually because we our next big event for social founders is all around the brand of the founder versus the brand of the organisation and social yeah. media and things. yeah so your experience will be really really interesting oh for that. definitely
0: um, and and we were very much a brand rather than individuals
1: and and even rather than an organisation from what you're saying you almost well did you she, set up a company a private company we we set up company? so we
0: at that time we registered with Prism and then we set up as a um, company limit a limited company yeah um partly because we were we were we went to see lawyers very quickly Mm. um and they advised us that in order to do advocacy you can't do that under the charitable arm so for any advocacy and that was something we really wanted to do from the get-go because it felt like we can't you know, giving people food and a yes. shelter is just a plaster.
1: I, w- I really want to ask you more yeah, about that, Yeah, so we we'll need come, to do yeah. advocacy. So. And you're doing a lot more of that now, aren't you? But we'll come back, we'll come on to yeah, that. Sorry, Hopefully. it's like, there's there's so a much, wide story. So much sorry. I want to ask you about. <laughs> and amusing. going back to the Greece, so you're now working a lot in Calais, working a lot in Greece. It's so in still... Calais, we're
0: the operation. Although even... Even although we're operational, there's different civil society organisations who we're we're funding. So this this model is already growing. So there's yeah. refugee community kitchen. Yeah. There was Calais Kitchens. There was a women and children's centre. They all had their own leadership teams and founders and everything. And we were we were funding them, but working collaboratively as well. Because, and
1: helping them and, as well.
0: Uh, yeah, exactly. We were you. all supporting each other, but we kind of became an umbrella. But in and
1: had you had you given up your day job by this time? I, when you became CEO,
0: I finished work. Yeah, a few months later.
1: Um, so you sort of juggled because this is actually a classic founder thing. Of yeah, like, it starts off as a side project and then, it and then slowly t- takes over your life. Totally. And, and uh, so you you juggled both for you, a long time. Yeah. How roughly? How long? Uh, a few, few
0: months. Yeah. Um <gasps> must have been crazy. But a lot of the others didn't have. Were like out. Had just in between jobs and that kind of thing, which is why they've been able to volunteer. Because right. um, not everyone can volunteer. You know, people have got jobs and kids and all that kind and of rent, thing. And, rent to pay and, or But a then those people or... want to help, so they can donate five pounds, yeah. or they can come and they could come and sort at the bigger yeah, storage yeah, 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 yeah. in London. So, so everyone did, has a different way of helping. How
1: did it feel when you moved from giving up your main income? yeah to doing help refugees and, and I did, don't, you, did they, you feel very nervous or did it just feel very organic and well natural?
0: I think I really don't think until even about a year ago it felt like anything other than like this is an emergency mm-hmm. and this is just what you have to be doing as a human being and it never felt like oh wow we have this organization or like oh wow it, it's just constantly felt like how are we possibly gonna raise enough money to support all these organizations who are doing this amazing work and how on earth are we going to let the world know that there are children still dying or Mm. that there are children still being put in detention Mm. centers Mm. throughout Europe or we very quickly began so so when we were working in Greece, we started to support all these different organizations on the islands, all civil society organizations. But then people were telling us, oh, there are people on the mainland too who really need support. Yep. And then it was also in the Balkans and it was also in Italy. And actually, we were meeting so many Syrians, and people were like, we, I feel so awful for my family back home. So, we very early on, November 2015, bought two ambulances for uh-huh. the white helmets. Oh, really? And that began our um, re- relationship and network with um, organizations working in Syria. And it was exactly the same thing there as it was we saw everywhere else in Europe that it wasn't the big INGOs and it wasn't governments who were, who were doing the actual life-saving frontline work. It was civil society-led organizations who have still have incredibly high standards. I don't want to do a disservice saying things like civil society-led or grassroots because they're incredible. Mm. But that they were doing the work and receiving none of the funding. So, it's, So we were able to... Offer this this uh, platform and funding yeah. and and also fund in a way that was very different to large NGOs which was very needs led so because we because we weren't um, we didn't have the knowledge we didn't come in saying oh it should be done like this we just said what do you need yeah. and people would be like I, I need I need funding for fuel because we've got funding for um, teachers but we don't have funding for fuel for the school and the children can't learn because they're freezing or we've been given donated loads of boots but we don't have any money for the cars to get the boots there and and so we we just began this this system of like right what needs to happen is we need to work fast flexibly um and and be needs led and be needs led by what's on the on the ground um and also by the refugees themselves like what's amazing about a lot of these organizations or in fact all of them is that they work so closely with the communities and are led by what the communities want and you know they know what they need yeah. it's it's very uh, you know it's it's quite colonial sometimes i think this sector where people come in and say this is uh, this is what you need
1: do goodie and patronizing yeah, yeah. um the, a lot of a lot of the founders that we work with are always there's always this issue externally about are there too many charities and why have you set up another organization mm. why aren't you working with the ones that exist already yeah. so did that come up sometimes did you
0: oh absolutely well also we in the beginning you, were like we shouldn't be doing this we have no idea what we're doing so it was like going and knocking on the door of the big organizations and being like i don't know if you know but there are like hundreds of children who were like sleeping in the mud in Calais yeah. and then, and expected them to go, oh my God, we had no idea, we'll sort this out for you. But actually for reasons of bureaucracy, for reasons of people being government funded, for a, reason, for a million reasons that I could go into and it would take hours, um, they weren't able or couldn't or didn't want to, um, in some cases, help. And so we did have to do it. And the, our partners did have to do it. And we, you know, It's complicated. I think now we're very aware that there is a real need for what we do. But for a long time, it was like, we don't want to be doing this. Mm, This is not mm, what we should be doing. mm. And a second that we don't have to do it, we won't do it anymore. And And so we're constantly trying to get people to do it.
1: Did you feel almost angry with the big boys? Absolutely. In the sector. But then,
0: you know, it's it's interesting because it's just this, the context of this crisis is so different and it moves so quickly. And all of these systems that have previously existed have been created for very good reasons, but they just don't fit right now. And sometimes these organizations are so big and bureaucratic Mm -hmm. and the individuals working in them are incredible and do incredible work. And these organizations, you know, they do things on a large scale that's incredible, but it's these bits that slip through the cracks. Mm -hmm. And that's what we, are able to to do well and so now actually we work you know in coordination with all of these big organizations and we can't do the big things that they can and we can do the small things and they will tell us you know there's going to be this gap can you fill that and we will say we desperately need you know help with this but of course as well we're trying to hold these big organizations to account because
1: because we live in a very different world now, and and they're getting millions from the big agencies absolutely. and from their, their huge, massive fundraising campaigns, absolutely, but not managing to get into the ground exactly. And maybe roots. there's too
0: many steps from the head office to the ground, mm-hmm. um, and and also sometimes now, like a lo- this crisis is not it is humanitarian, but it's actually political, and the only solution for it is to be like calling out the politics and also being able to. To, to not be led by the politics and mm-hmm. how you support people mm-hmm. and 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 that that
1: independence is something that's very important to us. So when when there's a male headline saying there's too many charities,
0: yeah, um, what
1: would you say about that?
0: I would say that that is just we live in a world where inequality is so huge, um, and whilst there are people suffering and people and the inequality is this big there can never be too many charities but I would say that charity needs to be done better um but I think it's so dangerous to be criticizing the work charities are doing um rather than criticizing the root causes for what's going on it's not it's not that we need to not be funding charities it's that we need to be addressing root causes
1: I think that um the founder urge that's in people wanting to set up Charities, social enterprises, mm. organisations going to change a community, change the world, change yeah. lives is so strong, yeah. and that to any way stop that yeah. is is crazy. So I, I think you I know, really
0: that feel that like we can't we can't live in we can't live in this very privileged world that we live in here in London, um, and know that just down the road, other people, or in fact anywhere in the world, people are are living in war or having to get in boats and risk risk their child's yeah. life for safety yeah. um really because of our foreign policies because of the, the way the system in the world works so, and until that is all addressed we all have a responsibility to be doing something about it
1: we'll come on a bit later to the campaigning work that you're doing yes. now because i really want our listeners to hear about that but i'm again really interested in how you as an individual mm-hmm. sort of changed in the role how did you how did your role start to change as, as chief executive now oh. of an organization <laughs> that's getting millions in, in funding working with thousands of other organizations the logistics must be a nightmare yeah how did how did your role change and you're still doing um, a lot of the the external work the social media work the profile yeah. the um what, what did you end up doing what well
0: three- I guess it was very much like um I always feel uncomfortable talking about myself as an individual because it really is a team effort but I guess it's like what my role holds is like an understanding of the projects that we're working on an understanding of how we serve them best and Mm. how we get the money to them continuing to fundraise and make sure that there's enough money in the bank at the end of every month because we we very much you know it's not like we had this annual budget and then we worked out this will go here this will go here like we literally every month had no idea how we were going to gonna continue to fund everyone and everyone not reliant on us because people have their own funding streams as well but you know that and and then working out so there's like relationships with private donors there's you know relationships with the public through our social media then there's also like making sure that that volunteers needed to be supported to be able to stay and that was really important to provide a consistent service to beneficiaries i really like the word beneficiaries to the communities that we're supporting yeah, yeah. Um,
1: and you're leading on a lot of the fundraising work. Yes, yeah. and then Is putting on main... so
0: putting on events became a big thing of the way that we were fundraising. Of course,
1: yeah. Um, so uh, in and again, November, a, s- a skill that you have. Yeah. yeah.
0: In November 2015, we put on a gig at the Kentish Town Forum. Paloma Faith headlined. Richard Bacon mm. uh, chaired it. There was yeah, it was it was it was a great night. We had refugee performers as well. Uh, Kate Tempest. Oh, so I wish I'd been there. Um, and we, for that, for that gig, you know, what? how do you raise money? So someone else who had been connected to us very early in the beginning, a guy called Hayden Prowse, who was hugely involved at the start. Yeah. He was best friends with Catherine Hamnett's son. So he asked... If Catherine Hamnett, so for those who don't know, Catherine Hamnett is a very famous designer in the eighties and nineties, and still now. Yeah. Um, and she designed the "Choose Life" T-shirt that Wham were very famous for wearing, and then lots of slogan T-shirts that were always had a an activist or social message. So it was a huge coup to get to her, and we asked if she would she would design the T-shirt, and she said yes and we were talking about what that t-shirt should say yeah. should it say help refugees which was now our name yeah. should it say refugees welcome uh-huh. should it say you know a host of other things and we had been talking about that you know as as you just said what is that thing that, that made you change your life yeah and from that very first trip to calais looking human beings in the eyes and just the humanity of it these people could be you they could be me they could be i had children my children it could be my mom it's literally just that we have been dealt a different hand of cards yeah and and so this isn't political it's humanitarian so she said why don't we just change choose life to choose love oh how nice and, yeah. and so it's her idea it was, it was her idea it. she's an incredible incredible yeah. woman we work so closely with her still she's now become like a great a great friend to me, she uh, when I'm like home from traveling, she'll cook me roast chicken. And, oh, lovely! Um,
1: she's based here still in London. She lives
0: in East London, just down the road nice, from me. Nice,
1: nice. And she's an
0: incredible, inspiring woman. But we didn't ever imagine that that t-shirt would go on for anything past the gig. Mm. But people loved it, connected mm. to it in a way that is just incredible. So we thought, right, well, this this is like a thing. And so I then asked quite a few celebrity. People that I knew from my previous life, um, as did Dawn and Liana, Mm. um, if they would wear the t shirt on Instagram. And then we thought we were thinking about the ALS challenge. And um, just explain
1: to people what the ALS challenge is. The
0: ALS challenge is the ice bucket challenge. When people, I'm sure people remember, people poured ice on people's heads and they did it for, and then people would donate to. And um, it just went crazy crazy on social media. And it raised millions and millions, millions and actually had a huge, huge impact in the world. So I think charities all over are like, and we still are too, like how can we recreate the ice bucket challenge? And this was a very, very small, teeny, tiny version. Um, But we were like, we'll get people to do a selfie in their t-shirt and then say, you can buy your t-shirt too, and then post it. And 100% of the profits go to the front line but also it's completely ethically made and then it's like a badge of honor to show kind of what you care about and what you feel.
1: I see people walking around in the t-shirts all over London. Me too.
0: I cry, really, I, like, I still just... burst into tears or I like inane madly smile at someone and they're like, "Why is she smiling at me?" cuz obviously so, don't know. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> How much of the t-shirts made
1: for you roughly?
0: Um coming coming Oh, uh, just over three quarters of a million so Incredible.
1: far. But it's not just the t-shirt. It, as you say, it's the brand. It's and the everything. Awareness. So
0: now, you know, it's hashtag. We started to put after every post, you know, when we would do like here, thank you so much for your donations. This is now funding a child friendly space in this camp. These children didn't even mm. what didn't even have any activities mm. and now we make sure that they have got juice and a snack and an, and activities like hashtag choose love. And that, that just became so part of our it, identity. And now people have like choose love parties and they cycle from one end of the country to the other to raise funds for us in that Choose Love t-shirt yeah. and Choose Love is, is, um, it, Choose Love is actually the movement.
1: And you're keeping that you're keeping help refugees still I wondered if at one stage you're going to change the name oh of the organization.
0: We because have a conversation <laughs> probably once a week about is it weird that we have both things that we're help refugees and that we're Choose Love should we combine it should we just be one of them? like we, it's something that we still kind of wrestle with right but but Essentially, help refugees is the organisation, and Choose Love is the movement,
1: which is probably the, quite good to keep the sense of a strong organisation.
0: Yeah, it is around
1: the movement underneath.
0: It is. It's the kind movement. of like um, Tesco, Every Little House, <laughs> oh, or donut. No. Love it or hate <laughs> it, I guess. You know, I, I, but but it is something, and you know, in terms of like Instagram, Choose Love is a lot more visible mm. than Help Refugees, and I I want, we wonder sometimes if we are losing. Um, it sounds so lame to talk about, we're losing followers um, because people might search, choose love, but they don't find anything because we're called Help Refugees. Right. And another, um, I don't know if we'll come on to this, but one of our huge fundraising tools is a shop that we now do.
1: Tell us about that now um, then. So,
0: so we very early on, right from the beginning, in fact, were bringing over politicians and journalists to come to all the places that we were working to say, like, this is the real situation. And on the when ground.
1: you say bringing over, bringing over... Politicians and journalists from the UK, from the UK, and from other countries, and as well? a bit from
0: other countries, but predominantly the UK, but and also from America, from New York Times, from
1: right. places, taking um, and taking them to Calais, taking them to Calais Greece, taking them to Greece, Syria, the even. Balkans.
0: We would connect them to people in Syria, right. um, but yes, Lebanon, Jordan. Um, later, and so we've specially built up a relationship with the Guardian. Um, and another thing that we'll talk about is that our advocacy around un- unaccompanied minors. And the Guardian really partnered with us yes. on that. So in the winter of 2016, we were the Guardian charity partner, well, one of three, for their winter Christmas campaign. Yeah, which has been so influential. It was, so many small charities. It's, yeah, it's yeah. just incredible what, what it did for us. But it, it raised us um, over £600,000, which got us through December January and February, and it was freezing and there were babies sleeping in tents. Mm-hmm. And I just literally don't know what we would have done yeah. without that funding. Because at that stage,
1: you were still pretty much hand to mouth in the oh, sense God, you absolutely. had no, nothing in the bank to No, nothing.
0: On. I mean, t- we still are basically hand to mouth, to be honest. But, you know, we have sustainable funding now, but it's still only a sixth of our income. Oh, yeah. And the needs are so they're greater than they ever yeah. were. Um, and it's not in the media yeah. as much. But so we had been we had been that. And then in 2017, we just had no idea how we were going to raise that that amount of funding again in such a short amount of time um and we were really really aware of it and uh, a guy that we had been working with called James Turner who worked at the Syria campaign so we'd we'd worked on various different parts of what was happening in Syria together he had since left and set up an organization called Glimpse who were a kind of group of creatives using their skills for good nice and I'd also worked quite a lot with his wife, who was also an activist and campaigner, and they had been on their honeymoon and they had been talking about that Amazon wish list. And he was like, oh, "It'd be really cool to do a shop um, that was, you know, kind of anti-consumer, yeah. where people could be essentially a version of the Amazon wish list, where people could come in, buy this, buy the stuff, and it would get delivered to the people who really needed it." So he came into the office, um, mentioned this to me, and I said, "I thought this was an amazing idea." went to the team. Everyone else also thought it was an amazing idea. Um, and we began working together on this concept. So in the in 2016, we opened a physical store in Soho. Soho London. Soho London, yeah. yeah that was called the Choose Love shop. Um, and it looked really cool. It looked a bit like an Apple store. Mm-hmm. We wanted to kind of reinvent the charity shop. And we had a beautiful big choose love sign that was made out of an emergency blanket, but that would be cool for people to have on their Instagram. And then this long table, like in an Apple store, down the middle of the of the shop, um, we split it into three sections. So arrival, shelter, and the future, which are kind of the three points of someone's journey that we support them nice. on in lots of different ways. Yeah. And then on the table were just everyday items. So you'd think that you're just coming in to buy them. So a child's coat, an emergency blanket, a tent, a food pack, a hygiene pack. But you come in and rather than take any of those items away, you buy them and you leave with nothing except the feeling of love. And we delivered them to people who really needed them.
1: Perfect. And it got um, a lot of coverage. It got a huge yeah. amount
0: of coverage. People connected to it in a way that I we could never have anticipated. We had an online version of the store as well. Mm-hmm. Um, we used influencers to come in and create create bars and explain to people that they could do this online or come into the store. We had gift cards so you could give it as someone's present for the holidays and say like the card has beautiful picture on. We really pride ourselves on always using like beautiful imagery, people with agency, you know, moving away from this the like poverty porn kind of thing that's been done before. Um, It's a beautiful image and it says like, dear mom, I um, have bought you a blanket this year but you're not going to find it under the tree instead help refugees will deliver it to someone who really needs it Fantastic. um we by this point have also learned that getting stuff delivered on amazon in the uk and then tre- trekking it across to another country in the lorry is not the best way of doing um aid so now we always buy locally in the countries that we work um Absolutely. and support the local economies yeah, yeah. um it's much more environmentally so, friendly so now when you buy the child's coat in In the store, we're buying children's coats in Greece, we're buying children's coats in Lebanon, or it might be that we have a system of a warehouse there where that's being donated and then the funds are being
1: used to support the distribution of that item. It's interesting how you're always learning on your your founder journey. Absolutely. So have you still got the shop?
0: So the shop was a pop-up from Black Friday to Christmas Eve, and we launched it on Black Friday to be like... You know, on Black Friday, when everyone's queuing up to, to buy loads of stuff they don't need. Actually, why don't you buy something for someone Perfect who really timing. needs it?
1: Perfect timing. Yeah. You're so good at all the media stuff. Um, and did you get that donated as well? The shop donated? Yes, we yeah. did from
0: a, yeah. a company called Shaftesbury, uh-huh. who are amazing. And then, so that year it raised £750,000. Perfect. Um, and then last year, we did it in New York, Soho, and London, Soho. Mm-hmm. Um, and we raised basically £2 million
1: at the same time exactly the the same
0: time both black fridays christmas Eve was completely insane and mad um we you know this year it was amazing banksy donated us a sculpture that he had pop up in our in our london store and people could guess the weight of of the it was a sculpture of a boat of refugees um that was from dismaland and it it was a raffle, so you could guess the weight of the boat for two pounds, and then the closest guess won the boat.
1: Wow! Um, who, who won the boat?
0: Um, uh, someone actually they wanted to remain anonymous, so right. I can't say. But they were a huge, huge fan, which was lovely. That's
1: fantastic. Now, now, tell us a little bit about. I just want to hear all the sort of the, the great stories, but we also really want to hear about again your process. So, who's your team? How do you? Do you, do you delegate loads of stuff? How do you? How yeah. do you What's What's the setup?
0: So we are, um, as I said, so Prism manage all our accounts in the back end, um, and we have two people completely employed just under Help Refugees. They're managing everything day to day, all our payments and transactions in prison. In prison, but right. they're Help Refugees. Yeah. And then within there's the wider Prism team who also all work on what we're on what we're doing yes. um and then in london there's myself as ceo we have nico our ceo um so
1: and nico does the sort of operational operations and
0: programs but it's still all very collaborative we're all we're all kind of involved in, in everything but as time's going on I'm tr- we're we're learning to delegate more of it it's hard it's so
1: hard um
0: <laughs> and then we have two people in our programs team in fact three now and then we have a uh, head of communications a uh, head of digital
1: although we're changing the job the
0: job role names actually mm. at the moment
1: and are they all based here in this second home office in most London? of the
0: time but sometimes people are people travel a lot yeah so then we have uh kind of partnerships but that's predominantly like fundraising and events and then we've got four other roles within the office who are all kind of supporting all of those okay. other uh, aspects um and and then you know, so the the digital is doing the website and everything, and we have, in fact, the 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 comms is split into two roles. Um,
1: so this is a tiny team. It's a
0: tiny team, We're like ten in London. And you
1: have volunteers who are actually doing a lot of the actual at, running of the organization. Yeah, we have like a
0: WhatsApp group in London that's called uh, Choose Love Crew. So when we have events and stuff, volunteers will come and
1: um,
0: can come and come and be there and selling the t-shirts or waitressing yeah. at the restaurant when we've got a restaurant or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, And then in Calais, we have two field managers Uh and then there can be up to sort of 100 volunteers a day there. And then we also have about eight to 10 people on stipends who are like long-term volunteers. But then we're also funding in part eight organizations working in calais and then within those teams there are people employed or there are more volunteers on stipends and we're paying accommodation and so right. it's kind of it's kind so of it's like a spider structure a network yes yeah. I like that. and then it's we spider. have probably so in greece greece is about half our half our project work we're funding uh, be, sort of between Yeah, around 60 organisations there. There's 75,000 refugees trapped in Greece. So So how do you
1: do all the due diligence? That's PRISM, is it? PRISM,
0: but then we have a team of four field managers in Greece. Right. um, Because that's where so much of our work is. Employed
1: by help help refugees.
0: refugees, And they are constantly checking in with the projects, understanding the context, doing the due diligence on a day by day basis. Mm. And then we also have WhatsApp groups with everyone. So people can say this is happening today. Oh my gosh, we need help with this. And and we have a presence on the ground. We travel a lot yeah. so that we I, you know, if I'm speaking to a donor, I want to look them in the eyes and say, I know exactly where yeah. that money is going. And I know that this is the most needed Because you're place. heading off to
1: Greece tonight. It, you? I'm literally yeah. heading off tonight.
0: Yeah. Um, but our teams on the ground are the eyes and ears mm. of the organization. So we have the, the team in France, the team in Greece, and then everywhere else, the, the project's team are traveling. And we've had a field manager in Italy, a field manager in Lebanon. Mm.
1: And do you have a, a board?
0: Yes. Yeah, uh, so we, well, we have Prism's board. Uh-huh and their board of trustees and everything, who everything has to go through. And then Help Refugees also has a quite a small board and then an advisory board of people who are experts in, in different areas. And that's all in the process of becoming more formalized at the moment.
1: And again, is that sort of the structure changing all the time? Is all you said set time. up a charity that's kind of dormant, but you use Prism, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, and do you have to set up separate companies uh, in Greece and France, or can you do it all from the company structure here?
0: Uh, It's complicated. We have had charity in Greece, but actually when we were working operationally, but now we don't work operationally, so we've dissolved that organisation.
1: Because Um, your operations are done by your partner organisations. Exactly.
0: We are essentially a funder, but it's a funder with a difference.
1: And the logistics of all the the transporting stuff, is that done by your partners now? We don't
0: really do that that much anymore. But then actually this summer we have done two lorries to greece and then lauren and our team who's amazing she's organized all of that um and then the lorry arrives there and yeah, and yeah there's all the different paperwork that you yes to
1: you're right in. you were saying earlier how you now you 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 source everything locally. yeah but we
0: have done yeah. some like so people here have been able to 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 bring their blankets and shoes and school mm. equipment and all that kind of thing because mm. that had worked in that moment it's worked out cheaper to actually send a lorry of aid and we do that as 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 us um and then There's also now a sister organization in the U.S. called Choose Love, Inc. That's
1: Um, interesting that they're called Choose Love as well. Yeah,
0: so, I mean...
1: And do you control that organization? Do you have ownership of it or is it independent?
0: There is an independent board, but Mm -hmm. we are still... I'm the CEO of that organization and Nico is the COO. But it's an independent board and it's a sister organization. It's not the same organization.
1: Interesting. That'll be interesting to watch how that evolves. Yeah, well, because we have the
0: shop in New York um yeah. this last year and then now we have a shop in yeah. New York and LA. Yeah.
1: Now we're not going to we're not going to forget the campaigning because that's really important. But yeah. I want to ask you how do you a lot of our founders in our network they when we all get together uh, at events and things like that there's a lot that comes out about the tough times and sometimes quite feeling quite lonely yeah. and resilience and who, you know, difficult, you know, who do you talk to when things are tough? How do you cope? You're so positive and so full of amazing energy and creativity and passion for this project. Do you get those moments Oh when my you gosh, think, oh, so shit? Much.
0: Yeah. And how, I,
1: do, how do you cope? Sometimes,
0: like, oh, my God, what on earth are we slash I doing? And, like, the, oh, my gosh, the responsibility and the, the liability and what are we going to do am i going we going to let everyone down i get i very much you know it's so cheesy but that i don't like the phrase lonely at the top because there's no top but that that having the responsibility mm. is lonely
1: you see it's so hard to imagine you with your amazing positive personality feeling like that but all our founders say everyone the same does. thing.
0: It's really hard. And
1: how do you how do you personally cope what do you have you know Because
0: we have such an amazing team and we really feel one unit and we all help each other through those moments because everyone all, all of us we're a small team so we're mm. all shouldering so much. We all have those moments and just sharing it and helping you know pick each other up when we're, when we're having having those moments um you know self-care in the beginning was working seven days a week 24 hours a day Uh, Uh, and now it's you know it's important to take to take weekends or at least try to and you know go to therapy and have a nice bath and light a candle before you go to bed you know so you just make a positive effort to make
1: sure that is part of your life absolutely you just have you
0: have to because otherwise you can't you get burnout and you can't continue, and that's that's not responsible.
1: And you've talked about how people like Catherine Hamnett and all, and your amazing network of contacts. Oh, that's it. Do you have do you have people who are either formally or informally your sort of mentors and advisors? That I, are...
0: I literally, I have said I get really emotional about how much people support us mm. and how much people are there for mm-hmm. us, and we're we're it is a movement, and there are there are so many people who are you know have had hugely successful careers who are just you know on the end of the phone for us and, and always for- there for advice and yeah. you know people from the formal sector yeah. and we're so lucky to be surrounded by mm-hmm. so many right. so many incredible people but it is hard it really is hard, hard. Yeah. It, it is hard yeah. to continue to have that 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 energy and that drive mm-hmm. and and you know and there's there's a balance between gosh is am I being egotistical? Like, does this have to be me? And like, working through all of that as well. And it's got. It's yeah. yeah. It's hard. Yeah.
1: yeah. No, that's so interesting that you say that this thing of the, the the founder brand. Yeah. And is it you know is it a negative thing? Yeah. And, and it's, kinda, is it gonna is it gonna become too much an ego? Yeah. And you have to or... keep
0: yourself in check as well. I think you know. It's...
1: And do you, do you do the old founders? Do you all get together sometimes and just sort of have time when you're. Looking back and thinking, oh, this is our journey yeah. over the last only, well, so, only four years, Josie. It's nothing, It's really. nothing. No, so Dawn
0: and, and Liana are aren't, aren't involved in the day-to-day anymore. Uh-huh. And then, as I mentioned, Danny is a is a trustee and then Nico and Philly are still are in the core team and then there are other people as well who are in the core team who have all been there since the beginning. So everyone does, absolutely. We all... Um, you all muck in. We all muck in and <laughs> yeah. we all have those moments. And, but it, it has only been over the last year that there's been any sense of achievement because it's always been about the emergency and it still is now it's looking forward Mm. it's like right now thinking you know oh my god like Mm. there are tens of thousands of people in camps in greece who have very little access Mm. to anything Mm. what are we going to do about that right Mm. now the situation in calais is awful oh my god there's unaccompanied minors here Mm. oh my god the boats Mm. can't dock in italy how can we support our partners who 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 are there? How can we be raising as much awareness? How can we raise as much funds as possible? How there are a million children trapped in Idlib being bombed every single day, and the world isn't talking about it. What can we do? It's it's always looking forward rather
1: than back. It's so interesting you saying that. It reminds me of when I used to run the Media Trust. There's that sense of you're never doing enough. Yes, and you could be doing so much more all the all time. All the time. And I think that's again being a founder of a charity or a social enterprise or a social impact mm. organisation. There's constantly that sense of you're never doing enough and never quite making enough impact.
0: Yeah, no, there really is. But then you've also got to balance that with like, as time's gone on, you have, you know, you don't have to. We're still young, but there's no excuse anymore for every I to not be dotted and every T not be crossed. Whenever we talk about growing or scaling, it's always it's got to be growing and scaling well. Yeah, Um, and 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 kind of being okay to pause and say actually we can't do anymore and we need to just tighten up yeah. everything that we're doing now we're, we're quite in a phase of that at how the moment f- it's like we grew a bit too much and now we need to like catch
1: up that's with interesting ourselves. how far ahead are you actually formally planning Oh, um,
0: yeah. not past the end of december really
1: like, like you don't have like a three-year plan or a five-year plan or no apparently google doesn't either so no. that, you're in I, good company you know
0: i we we do kind of we talk about it a bit and we do strategy sessions where we will talk about that but like essentially we don't know that we we don't we don't know what the situation will be and we don't know that you know we'll be will people will still want to donate to us mm, so mm. we we don't we don't know except we do know that as a we will always work our hardest and as long as there is a need, we will always yeah. try and fulfill yeah. it and be flexible. That's
1: a good, good moment to start talking about the campaigning work that you're yes. doing.
0: As I said, like from the second we arrived in Calais, we were like, this is insane. Mm. And literally I think like went into the Guardian and like knocked on people's office doors and said, will you please come and talk about this. And using connections of getting people there, getting mm. politicians to come. Um, and then a big thing was the number of unaccompanied children living in the camp. You know, there were children as young as nine living outside, sleeping in the mud, and it just it just felt outrageous and not okay. And and in the January of two thousand and sixteen, uh, a boy called Masood, who was fifteen, trying to reach his sister in Afghanistan, died trying to cross illegally. He died on um, a lorry, mm-hmm. and it just felt like this is this is not okay. And so we did an Instagram post and I was like, again, like asking people to share it. And there were some people who were working in the camp also around this issue of unaccompanied minors and starting to think about how we can legally get them out. And I got connected to a man called George Gabriel, who had set up an organization called Safe Passage. And... I had in fact started writing him an email about like I think we we could do this 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 and he replied like no <laughs> we we know what we're doing like that's not helpful and I was like okay how can we be helpful um, and so basically we wanted that's to a find a way for the children to be legally brought to the UK that had a right to be in the UK because the journey was so dangerous and so many of the children did have a legal right it turned out so a huge number of the children there were, were there because they were trying to meet their family yes. in the UK yes. and it, what's interesting is people like think about Calais like oh my god there's a run on the border but they you know there were ten thousand people out of a million who had arrived in Europe it's a very small number of people who 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 were there and trying to reach the UK and the majority of them were there mm-hmm. for with a legitimate reason so a lot of these kids imagine you're Twelve from Syria, and all your family has been killed, and the only living relative you have is an uncle in the UK. Well, if there's no safe and legal way for you to reach them, you will have to do the the other way, which is you know so awful and opens a child to so much risk from traffickers and exploitation. Um, so. So Safe Passage were doing an amazing thing, which was to be getting the children, individual lawyers to try and break open this legal route, which did exist. They should legally allowed to be with their family, but there was no way of them accessing that route. So we began partnering with them yeah. with both funding them to do that um, and working together on strategy with celebrities, politicians, getting media and really, really campaigning around that issue. So we began working with Lord Alf Dubs and other organizations, including Save the Children, uh, on the. Amendment, yep. which was basically an amendment to the Immigration Act that said that we would bring in, at first, 3,000 unaccompanied children from Europe, much like we had in the kinder transport in World War Two. Yes. It's something Britain's very proud of, is that we took in all these unaccompanied children. Um, it's strange that we aren't so proud of it now. We are still so proud of it, but we don't want to, to do it again. So we began working with ALF, with Safe Passage and lots of other organisations on, on this campaigning. We really got it to become, you know, it was front page of newspapers. Yes. It was in the media, it was in the news. We brought Lily Allen over. We re- we really, we got the Daily Mail to do a sympathetic story to child refugees. I was going to ask
1: you about the Mail, actually, yeah, because you do a lot with The Guardian, but yeah, I'm always encouraging we're always, we're always charities to work to with the Mail. We to do the Telegraph, the, Times, yeah, the Mail, yeah.
0: the Sun. We managed to get all of them, in brilliant, fact, to, brilliant, do, brilliant. to do sympathetic stories, and 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 so eventually the dubbs amendment got caught, passed as law yeah. um and but it, but not as 3000 children as an unspecified number because it had to ping pong through the lords and the and the house of parliament and but for 6 months just nothing happened it yeah. had been passed as law and nothing happened and then in the october of 2016 um the calais camp was being demolished yeah. um And there was no plan for what was going to happen to the children. At that time, there were a 1,000 unaccompanied minors. Uh, And we were really just just didn't know what to do. So um, we were very lucky to be connected to Lee Day, um, the um, legal organization, um, and to a solicitor called Rosa Curling. Uh Uh-huh
1: who we'll put notes by the way on the website about all these organizations oh, so that people can um, look at them up. i don't know
0: why a legal organization but they're a human rights
1: organization yeah. day.
0: um essentially um and they pro bono began working with us to so we litigated against the home office for their failure to implement the act Incredible. um and and how, quite, how did you how did you personally But again like i feel that. mad now it's like actually crazy to be like yeah sure we'll sue the home office
1: so you're constant if you think back right from day one when you rented that one room i mean it's
0: absolutely mad all of these things there was so much risk involved in everything and i and i there's a fearlessness that um is really important and a
1: determination yeah, yeah
0: there is and but You just, just take
1: a deep breath and you do these things, and, and you, you just you, do them, and you and you rely presumably enormously on a network of support exactly. and advice. and Absolutely, yeah, I mean, so much nothing's
0: taken lightheartedly, but also it is done quickly. Mm. Um,
1: going um, right back to your original skills in the music industry yeah. when you're having to run events for yeah, cold play yeah. or whatever, uh, yeah, that,
0: and 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 you know, that the same, like knowing how to run. Uh, with a music hat knowing how to like organize the trip for the press to come and all that stuff it's been exactly the same for this
1: yeah great skills Um,
0: but so we litigated against the home office within uh, a couple of weeks 200 children were transferred from the Calais camp to the UK the most vulnerable so the under 12s um, the girls they put a criteria that uh, it was those from Syria and South Sudan and we challenged that um, together again with other organizations privately as well To say that the criteria needed to be vulnerability led not country led that that one but then in early 2017 the this the government announced that the scheme would be closed at 350 places because that was the only capacity of local authorities Um, and we knew there was so much public willingness for, for this scheme um for for dubs um that we challenged that and and said that actually no their consultation with local authorities was was not done properly um, and in our evidence they found another 130 places so the number became 480 yeah. um and you know and, and during all of this time the situation was desperate like there were thousands of children in Greece sleeping outside unaccompanied children Italy thousands again you know a, around a thousand in northern mm-hmm. france mm-hmm. P- Kids living in the worst possible conditions. Mm-hmm. So this, it was an emergency, and all of this time was just. It it, it still boggles my mind that that, that that this could have all taken so long.
1: And how are you campaigning now for stuff moving forward? So
0: so in terms of dubs, the we we lost our next two parts of the case. We we had some slight wins in terms of how of how process works, but the number is still four eighty. But those those places are still not filled. Um, That's crazy. Which isn't is it? crazy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're still campaigning around that i have to say our, our yeah everything's a balance because we're a small team and so the humanitarian needs have been so great um as the as the spotlight from this crisis has pulled away and the funding has pulled out that that less of our energy has been able to go into that advocacy part but um we're kind of at the moment, working out how we can make bring that back to the forefront. Yeah. But, but the unaccompanied children is always like a, one of our main priorities. And then we've done a lot of campaigning this summer around the situation in Syria, um, talking about the situation in Idlib. There's yes. um, three million civilians, a million children trapped. They're being bombed every single day by the Assad regime in Russia. Yeah. No one is doing anything. Yeah. Um, so we did a, a, a letter on the anniversary of Jo Cox's death with her sister um, to the party leader's um and perspective at that time party leaders asking what they were going to do for the for the million children and did that get good coverage it got good coverage and we got good pickup and um and we got replies from from everybody but again it's you know it's just words it's not action and and this is what what needs to change in our world right now like there's just words everywhere and what we need to see is is action and way to really to really make yeah. change, and we need our leaders to to like to step up for what is for what is right and what is good. It's
1: so hard, isn't it? Because the global organisations are feel very weak at the moment. Well, they the UN are. But they and, are. And they're and very weak. And they're... even some of the big global refugee charities do. But this is the thing. We are charities. in a
0: we're in a time where all of these systems and institutions that we've relied on for so long aren't working mm. um,
1: but so what, I, are the, what, are, what are the next just to sort of sum up what do you think are the next two or three big challenges for help refugees um, and for you personally as, as an amazing founder chief
0: executive <laughs> um, well we're, we're kind of in the process we're, we're going to do the shops this year in LA, New York and London so that wow. is like a big piece of work At,
1: around Christmas time
0: again yeah same yeah. Black Friday to Christmas Eve so I just have to
1: hope that, that that people
0: respond again and we are able to um that we're able to to raise the funds that we need again for will, our partners to get through the winter. And that'll create an um, amazing
1: spotlight as well on the issue. Yeah. And, you know. and then
0: how do we remain relevant? Yeah. How do we grow and keep those core our core values of being of being, you know, led by led by the ground, led by the people we support, being fast, being flexible, having dignity, humanity, hope and respect at the heart of everything we do, whilst having to formalise as well, and, and funding coming from different places and getting funding from, from larger institutions. I think you know, we, are, we, we will never accept government funding because we need to remain um, yeah. independent, yeah. but just how do, how do we navigate that? There's also you know, a, a trend now for humanitarian work to become criminalised. What's that going to look like for us and the countries that we're working on our partners? Wow. Um, that feels so you, pretty scary. Are got, we are we going to be allowed to do the, to do this work still yeah, yeah, in in the current political climate? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So um, you've got some enormous challenges ahead. Yeah, <laughs> you're at such a key stage. Four years into the, the organization, yeah. you've made history in some way in the charity sector I or in the in so. the, in, oh the God, in the social impact sector yeah. with everything that you've done. It's been we've, so interesting listening to you. We've been very lucky. So if if somebody came along who was you four years ago and wanted to set up an organization. What would you say to them? What would be your key tip? Um, just
0: follow your gut and work really hard, and um, and and always just listen to everyone around you, and always work in partnerships, and never think you know best. But but always follow follow your your gut and your instinct. And, and yeah, be, I don't know. I, I and would be brave. I, I, be brave. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I I you know there's also an element to this that we were in the there was just a moment in time I don't know if this could it was lucky is not the right word because it's so awful that that this situation exists but it was a moment in time and that's why this exists in the way that it does um but yeah, I don't know I think the naivety part of it was very was very important
1: well i I just can't help but take my hat off dJs you, you've done an amazing job oh, and you've inspired. You. So many millions of people around the world, all ages. That's the other thing that's been so brilliant about Help Refugees. You've got really old people, really young people, all backgrounds. So
0: nice. So they they inspire us. Like honestly, it is it is a movement. It's not it's not a charity with a nucleus here. It's a movement, and it only exists because people are choosing love everywhere. And, I, and
1: actually, if, if anybody listening hasn't looked at the Help for Refugees website, it is so interactive, oh. and the voice of all your donors and your the the people who support you and the people who donate pro bono stuff and cash Great. and everything else they're there on the website so when you say it's a movement you you're super engaged with everybody aren't oh, you that's and you so really nice. I make, hope tell so. that story yeah, very we well so. so is there anything that you particularly want our listeners to to do that can help you apart from buying a nice choose love t-shirt <laughs> yeah so
0: the obvious is, obvious things are you can buy a choose love t-shirt on asos you can donate on our website please buy things in the choose love shop oh, this Christmas. Um, and and you can also find out about volunteering on our website. But I guess also in a just a wider sense, like there has never been a more important time to be engaged than now. And everyone can do something. And it doesn't need to necessarily be around the refugee crisis, it might be around the environment, it might be around homelessness, but like no one should ever feel that they can't make a difference because everyone can um and just always believe believe in yourself and and we all have a
1: responsibility too right now we'll Josie Norton, co-founder of Help Refugees and Choose Love, and chief executive as well. Wow. You've been on an amazing social founder journey, wow. and we're very privileged to have heard you. No, thank it's you, thank really you so fantastic. much, Caroline.
0: I'm privileged to have spent the time with you. Oh, so that's
1: great. You. Well, good luck with everything. We wish you thank all the very best of love and we will absolutely promote you as much as we possibly oh, can so to nice. our network as well.
0: Thank you so so, thank we'll, you so much, so and thank you we'll, to everyone who supported us. Oh, that's great. <laughs>
1: Many thanks again to Josie Norton, chief executive and co-founder of Help Refugees and their brand, Choose Love. You can connect with Help Refugees on Facebook at Help Refugees UK and on Twitter and Instagram at Choose Love. And you can visit Help Refugees' virtual shop to buy a gift for a refugee or pop in in person if you are in London, New York and Los Angeles. You go to www.choose.love you'll find information about how to shop and how to visit do stay in touch with us and please support help refugees as much as you can that's it for today thanks so much for listening to Social Founder Stories I'll really look forward to your feedback do subscribe to the podcast we have some fantastic guests coming up you can also sign up to our newsletter on our website www socialfounder.org then you can hear about our events blogs and founder stories you can follow us on Twitter at socialfounders and if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast please do leave us a great five star review this will really help spread the word and of course if you are a social founder or even thinking of becoming one let me know thanks again Caroline at socialfounders Social Founder Stories is brought to you by the Social Founder Network in association with Kiva, the Centre for Innovation in Voluntary Action. You can find out more about Kiva and support their innovative work at www.kiva.org.uk.